The Guardian. My name's Joshua. Uh, welcome to James Fryer. I'm here to interview you today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Well, welcome, first of all. It's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So, I want to talk quickly about Endgame. Great. You released it with a promise of money to whoever cracks uh, the clues of the trilogy. Where did that idea come from? Well, um, when I was 10 years old, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in sort of the middle of America. Um, and I liked reading books a lot when I was a kid. And my mom brought home an English book for me one day called Masquerade by a guy named Kip Williams. And it was a pretty simple book. It had 16 pages of text and 16 paintings in it. And embedded into the text in those paintings was a puzzle. And Kip Williams had hidden somewhere in England a solid gold jewel-encrusted rabbit. And if you could solve his puzzle, it led you to the location of that rabbit. I was fascinated with that book as a kid. I loved it. I read it over and over and over again, tried to figure it out, but never could. It took three years for somebody to, to crack that puzzle and find that rabbit, and then the world sort of forgot about it. But I never did. I always thought about it, I always remembered it, and I always wanted to try to do something like it. And um, so Endgame is my version of that, but it's really an attempt to do what he did on a massive scale using not only a book but using 21st century technology to tell other parts of the story. There's $3 million in total across the entire trilogy for the puzzles. How do people go about winning it? Is it in money or is it gold? Or Well, um, there will be three novels and each of the novels is about a hunt for a hidden key and each of the novels will have a puzzle in it. And in each of the books, the first person to solve the puzzle will receive a real key, which will open a case at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada, that is filled with, right now, $500,000 of gold. So the prize for the first book is $500,000, and we would like the prize for the second book to be a million, and for the third book to be $1.5 million. Um, so I can't tell you how you're going to crack it, and I'm not allowed to give you any clues, but somebody will solve that puzzle, receive that key, and get to go to Las Vegas and open that case and walk away with a big pile of gold. And why did you decide to put the Mario's money up yourself? Is that, is that true, first of all? Did you put the money up yourself? What was, um, your, what was the idea behind that? I did put the prize money up myself. Um, the idea was that I wanted to show that I believed in my idea, that I was going to put my money where my mouth was, that... Um, it was important also for me to reinvest in myself. You know, they always say the best investment you can make is in yourself. And so I took the money the publisher paid me for the book and I put it back into the book and said, you know, I want to make this great. I want people to have as much fun with it as I had with Masquerade as a kid. And I'm going to show you how much I love it and believe in it by putting up the money myself. So you've not actually received any profits for this or... Will you still receive proceeds now it's gone? Well, that'll depend on how many copies it sells. I mean, if it sells lots of copies, I'll get that money back. Um, but if it doesn't, um, I won't. 
you know, I'm obviously I'm hoping that it sells lots of copies and people love the book and they love the story and they love reading it and they love the puzzle. But we have yet to see. It just came out. You worked with um, Nils Johnson Shelton on this book. How is he to work with? Um, I did work with Nils Johnson Shelton. He's great to work with. He's an old friend of mine. Um, we've known each other since before either of us were published writers. Um, he was great. The way we did it was I created the mythology and wrote an outline for the book and created the characters. And then um, Nils wrote the first draft of the book. And then I did a couple more drafts after that. And we went back and forth. It was great. It was very collaborative and it was really fun. There's 12 lines in this book and each of them are based on the original populations, we'll call them, of humanity. Where did you get the idea for them from? Were they from history or were they... So in the book, what the, what the mythology of the book says is that uh, 12,000 years ago, aliens came to Earth and needed gold. And they saw these sort of grunting animals that ran around and bashed each other over the heads with sticks. Um, and they decided to make us a little bit smarter so that they could organize us into a labor force so that we could dig up the gold for them. So they created 12 original societies around the world, or as we call them, lines, and all of humanity is descended from those lines. Um, all of the lines in the book are real historical societies, the earliest civilizations that we know of to exist. So examples are the Sumerians in the Middle East, the Olmec in South America, the Cahokians in North America. In Europe, there is Latene. Um, most of England would be descended from Latene or the Nabataeans. You know, in China, there's the Shang. Um, in Japan, there's the Mu. Um, it's the oldest societies in the world, all of which are now gone, and most of which we have little, if any, trace of their existence. Um, it was a way to use history, but also not be bound by it. We were using real things and real parts of history, but because there is so little known about these civilizations, it allowed us to um, use our imaginations as writers and to create what we imagined their descendants would be like today. And I suppose that kind of brings me on nicely to the next question. Why did you decide to start the game in China? Well, we decided to start the game in China because of the great pyramid of Xi'an. Um, so the way the book works is endgame, these original 12 civilizations were all told 12,000 or so years ago that at some point the world would end. And when it ended, a game would be played that would determine the future of humanity. And that they had to keep a player under the age of 20 prepared to play that game at all times. And the only thing they knew about the game was that it would start with a celestial event. Um, so at the beginning of the first book, 12 asteroids simultaneously hit Earth's surface, which is a pretty big celestial event. And they kill millions of people and they do trillions of dollars of property damage. And everybody on Earth thinks it's a fluke except for these players who know that Endgame just started. Um, each of these players for hundreds and generations have always worn a necklace around their neck. And they knew that somehow that necklace would lead them to the calling, which is how Endgame starts. So they each learn through a piece of meteorite and the necklace that they have to go to China. Um, there is a pyramid in China called the Great Pyramid of Xi'an. It's built to the exact dimensions of the Great Pyramid at Giza, except it's three times larger. The pyramid in Xi'an is covered with white limestone and a gold cap. They know the Great Pyramid at Giza used to be covered with 
white limestone and a gold cap. Um, the last time anybody saw the Great Pyramid of Xi'an was in 1945 when U.S. fighter pilots flew over it and took pictures of it shortly after World War II ended. Um, the Chinese government doesn't let anybody near the pyramid, and they do not allow pictures of it to be taken with commercial satellites. They do not say why they restrict access to it or why nobody's allowed to take pictures of it. So from a storyteller's perspective, it's an awesome mystery. It's a great, giant, real pyramid but nobody knows anything about it because we're not allowed to. So I, I, I use that because I think it's super cool. I can tell from reading the book that you put an incredible amount of research into it. How much research did you actually put into the writing of this book? I mean, a lot of research. We were constantly looking stuff up, constantly learning stuff. One of the funnest things about writing a book like this is you learn so much about the world and um, in this case, we learned a lot about what people call hidden history. And the idea of hidden history it's, is that there is the history that we are taught at school, but then there is the history that they do not want to teach us at school because it is potentially dangerous or potentially conflicts with the stories we have been told. And we learned a lot of stuff, not only about hidden history, but about ancient cultures and ancient civilizations. We certainly learned a lot about games and puzzles. It was a ton of fun. I mean, how many hours did we spend? I wouldn't even know. 50, 60? A lot. A lot of time researching things. So it's fair to say you put a lot of work into writing this book. Oh, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of work to write any book, whether whatever kind of book anybody writes. Whenever I meet another writer, I always have a lot of respect for them because writing any book is a difficult thing. It's It's hard takes a lot of thought, a lot of effort. It's very lonely because most of your time is spent alone. Yeah, it was a ton of hard work, but it was fun. It's also the you know the greatest job I could imagine having and, and a dream come true to get to do this. The kind of last point I want to bring up about the book is at the end, obviously at most books you have acknowledgements, but for Endgame, there were shortened hyperlinks as the acknowledgements. Um, why was that? your choice for the acknowledgments was that your choice at all well it's not acknowledgments the the reason those links are in there is as you're reading the book you'll see a lot of words in the book are are footnoted yeah and those are footnoted with those hyperlinks and what that is is it's all part of the puzzle so as you're reading and you come across a footnote you open the glossary in the back you go to a computer you type in the link it'll take you somewhere it'll take you to a search result, or a Google Earth location, or a YouTube video, or a website. Something that Nils and I, as the authors, want you to see. We want you to not only read the book, but we want you to look at those footnotes, type those hyperlinks into a computer, and go out into the world and see what else we may or may not be telling you, and see what else we want you to see. That's great, actually. Um, we can tell that a lot of work has been put into the writing of this book. Um, I kind of want to ask you a few questions about you now as well. All right. I'm way more boring than the book, I'll tell you that. Um, you did a piece for The Guardian a couple of years ago that I managed to find on the internet, and you said in that um, that if you were the guy that destroyed the... Because you were talking about your autobiography in that. You said if you were the guy that destroyed the memoir genre, I'm not particularly unhappy about that. I kind of wanted to ask you... I cannot put this into any genre. I don't think it fits fully into one and I don't think it fits fully into the other. So 
what genre do you think it actually falls into? I'm not sure. I mean, publishers, you write a book, publishers always want to find a genre to put it in. But for me, the best things are things, whether it's a movie or a song or a book or a painting, are things that defy those classifications. And so that's what I always try to do. I don't worry when I'm writing a book about what is this. Is this sci-fi? Is this adventure? Is this literature? I don't care. What I care about is telling the best story I can. And often the stories I tell defy those classifications. You know, I've written books in the past that aren't really fiction and aren't really nonfiction. Um, I've written novels that use lots of real-life information in them. That's in many ways what this is. What I hope is people read it and they, they just say, this book is awesome. They don't say this sci-fi book is awesome or this YA book is awesome. They just say, this book is awesome. And, and if I can do that, it makes me happy. And I'm also impressed with your question. That was pretty pretty awesome question. <laughs> and I suppose the final thing I want to ask you is if you give one quote now about literature to any young adult that's listening to this, what would you want that quote to be? About literature specifically? Not, I suppose, literature, but about fiction and books. I mean, I would say when I was a kid, I loved reading books, but I always imagined that writers were people who were smarter than me or better educated than me or were in gifted and talented programs at school. I never imagined that I could actually be a writer. And then one day I decided, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. And I worked really hard for a long time, and I was able to become a writer. And I would say to, to young kids who love books, if you want to be a writer, you can. If I can do it, anybody can do it. You just got to keep reading books and you got to work really hard and you got to love to write. And uh, the world is always going to need great storytellers. And I'm looking forward to seeing what your generation of storytellers um, writes and the stories they have to tell me. It's been great to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was literally one of the best interviews I've ever done in my whole life. So thank Thanks. you very much. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.